0: Thank you, Jesus. For those of you who were here this morning, we had uh, Stephen Minister, and he played a little video about Kevin and Rachel Dowling. And we had them stand down here, and people just came up and hugged their neck and gave them money, and they gave uh, $10,823. Isn't, Isn't that great? So man, that's going to bless Kevin and Rachel. I don't think they're here. I'd have seen that tie-dyed shirt and do-rag if they were here. But isn't that great? I'm sure they'll really be blessed by that. Let's turn back to the book of Galatians. I've been sharing on the cross, and I started off defining what the cross is. It's not talking about the physical instrument of crucifixion, but the way Paul used it, it was referring to everything that Jesus accomplished what He did for us, His completed work, and specifically that He finished it. You can't add to it. You can't do anything to add to it or distract from it. That Jesus paid it all. And that's what I really tried to emphasize on Monday night. Last night, I began to share out of chapter 5. About in verse 11, it says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. The cross is offensive. And I begin to talk about why that is. And it's because it takes away any claims of goodness on our part. It takes away any emphasis of how good we are relative to other people or anything like that. At the foot of the cross, all of the ground is leveled. Nobody has a step up on anybody else. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that is very offensive to the religious person because it takes away all bragging rights. It excludes boasting. And it makes us just totally dependent upon God. We were just talking about Leland and what a great thing. But you know, the, really, the only great thing about Leland was he just had enough sense not to do his own thing and he followed God. Amen. He responded to the Lord. That's what makes any person special. It's not them individually. It's not an individual person. And you know, to a person who is really proud of their accomplishments, that's offensive. Because you're saying all my hard work doesn't make me any better than anybody else. That's absolutely what I'm saying. The only thing that really empowers us in the gospel is not our great accomplishments, but whether or not you're... Dependent upon the Lord. You know, I called a woman one time and she answered the phone. And I said, How are you? And she said, Oh, I'm weak in Him. And when she said that, I thought, What does that mean? And I got to thinking about it. And you know, Paul said, When I'm weak, then I'm strong. When you aren't trusting in yourself, then you're strong. The moment you get to trusting in yourself, it doesn't matter if yourself's better than myself, yourself is insufficient and you're going to fail. And the key to the Christian life is to get out of yourself. And sad to say, most of religion is all about yourself and all about what you can do. And if you will do these things, then God is obligated to respond to you because you're somebody special. And that is offensive, offensive, offensive to God. You know, if for some reason I loved you all enough, I can't even really conceive of this, But if I loved you enough that I would take one of my sons and kill him because you deserve to die. And if I loved you enough to sacrifice my son so that you could live. And I did this when you didn't care whether I did it or not. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't after we turned to the Lord and after everything was great in our life and God just said, oh man, they're so awesome, I've got to have them. We were rejecting Him. We were doing our own things. And if I loved you enough to kill one of my sons to pay your penalty, I wouldn't do something like that unless it satisfied all of my wrath and all of my displeasure. I wouldn't make a huge sacrifice like that if it was only a portion of it. If it didn't solve the problem. I talked to a woman tonight. Who said she knows that Jesus died for? She believes it. She's just not sure that He would accept her because she's so bad. And you know what that is? And I told her this. So I'm not saying anything to you. I didn't say to her. I said it in love, and she received it. I believe she got set free. But I told her. I said, "You know what you're doing? You're make, you are making your sins and your failures bigger than Jesus. That's an insult to God." You're saying that Jesus wasn't enough. You know, if you had one of these scales that had a fulcrum in the metal and the chains and the two little things that you, you weigh things out, if you were to put the sins of the entire human race over here, I mean not just the current sins, but all of the sins that will ever happen, all of the sins that have ever happened in the past, and if you were to put them on one side and make that thing go to the bottom, one drop of the blood of Jesus would tip the scales. That's how holy, that's how awesome Jesus is. His sacrifice was so great that it can't even be compared to the sin of the world. Somehow the, war, the church has got this all backward to where sin is such a hideous, terrible thing, which it is. I'm not saying sin's good, but I'm saying in comparison to the price that was paid, it is nothing. The price that was paid was infinitely more. In Isaiah chapter 40, it's a prophecy talking about Jesus. It was uh, John the Baptist quoted Isaiah chapter 40 verse 1. And it says, cry unto my people, tell them that the warfare is accomplished because she has received double for all of her sins. That's a prophecy about the Messiah coming if you take it and read it in context. And it says, Jesus paid more than the sin of the entire world. It would be like if you were buying something, and it cost you $100, and so you were about to give them your credit card, and you held it out, and I said, no, and I held your hand back and I said, put it on my account. I'll put a million dollars down. Will that cover this $100 debt? (laughs) That's what Jesus did. We were going to have to pay for our own sins. Basically, this is what religion is telling us to do today, that you have to pay for your own sins. Oh yes, you have to believe on Jesus, but He didn't pay at all. You've also got to grovel in the dirt. You've got to bear shame. You've got to bear condemnation. You've got to go around with a sin consciousness and feel unworthy. And I tell you, what Arthur ministered this morning is the exact opposite of that. He totally obliterated sin. It's not just covered, it's gone. It doesn't even exist Your sins are a non-issue between you and God. Let me say it this way. It's a non-issue from God's standpoint. He dealt with sin. His wrath has been atoned. God's not upset. He's not mad. He's not even in a bad mood. God has completely dealt with your sins. But you now have to obliterate those sins and get out from under this condemnation. God reconciled us to Him, but now you've got to reconcile God to you. You've got to accept what He said and believe that God is now friendly with you. And this is what all of this is talking about. And then, I, you know, I'm, not, I, I'm just uh, not following my ideas very well. But that's good stuff. I went back to the first part of chapter 5 and I think I quit. At verse 4, right after it says that if you are trusting in your own self-effort, then you make Christ of none effect. In verse 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. I said this last night, but circumcision here is not just talking about the physical act. It was like the primo, number one act of the covenant. And when you say that, you're encompassing the whole law. You're referring to everything that the law is. You're just referring to keeping a set of rules, and if you will do this, then God does this. So that's what that's referring to. And, you know, today, circumcision isn't the big issue in the church. We don't talk about that because uh, Acts 15 settled it when they had this conference, and it settled it so much that's never been an issue since. But we still argue about, well, do you have to be holy, and do you have to do these things? We still have the exact same concept with just different acts, and this, you've got to understand it, at this time, to say that a person could have, a man could have a relationship with God without being circumcised was terrible. In Genesis chapter 17, it says, anybody who said that, you have to kill him. That's how strong this was. Here's Paul saying, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or not. Did you know that the religious people of Paul's day, they, they they would have yelled heresy. They would have rebelled at this. Just as the religious people of our day rebel when you say you don't have to be holy to receive salvation. You know, Pastor Dan Funk, I don't know if he's here tonight, he's been here this week. Are you here, Dan and Penny? He's probably having church tonight. But he was telling me this morning that he struggled, even with the things that he heard me preach about this... And the thing that set him free in this area was in Exodus chapter 12, when the death angel passed over, they put the blood on the doorpost, and as long as they stayed in that house, when the the death angel saw the blood, he passed over. And he said inside of the house there were people who were in fear, there were people who were probably griping and complaining, they probably had arguments and fights, There were people wondering about, is this really going to work? There was all varying stages of holiness and people in faith, but it didn't matter. The death angel didn't look at the people inside. He looked to see if the blood was there. And once the blood has been applied to you, God passes over you and and passes over your sin, doesn't look at Him, and He treats you with love, not because of who you are, but because of what Jesus did for you. You know, another point in Isaiah chapter 53, it says that he will see the travail of his soul. This is talking about God the Father will see the travail of Jesus' soul and will be satisfied by his uh, actions. He, My righteous servant will justify many. And here's a picture under the Old Testament. When a person came to the priest to offer a sacrifice, he presented a lamb. Arthur made a great point about Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they brought this lamb to the high priest. And you know what the priest did? The priest examined the lamb to see if it was without blemish, to see if it was holy. He didn't examine the person that brought it. As a matter of fact, the very fact that you were bringing a lamb means that you had sin in your life. Only sinners need a sacrifice. So if you brought a lamb, that was a confession that you knew that you needed an atonement. But the priest didn't examine the person. And he didn't say, well, man, you aren't worthy. What makes you worthy to offer this sacrifice? The lamb had to be spotless and without blemish. And if the lamb was without blemish, then it satisfied the wrath of God. Amen? Not the person. And that's the way it is with us. When you accept Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or what you're going to do. It's only based on the sacrifice. That's what this is saying. Boy, these are powerful, powerful, powerful truths that he's talking about here. And so it says in verse seven, "You did run, uh, you did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth?" And what he's talking about is he brought the gospel to them. He presented the true grace of God. It says in chapter three, verse one. Let me just read that quickly. He said, "Oh, foolish Galatians." Man, some of the translations I've read said, you idiotic, stupid people. I mean, it's, this is strong. Paul didn't pull any punches in Galatians. You know, Romans makes the exact same points, but it's in like a scholarly way, and it goes through and does it. Hebrews makes the same points. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians make many of these same points. But in Galatians, he just takes the gloves off and gets brutal with these people. You idiots! You fools! Oh foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? That's talking about you're, you're deceived. Somebody cast a spell on you is the way one translation says it. Who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? He's describing how he presented the gospel. He presented Jesus crucified. He talked about the cross. He talked about that Jesus paid it all. And he made all of these points that I've referred to, what Arthur talked about, and many, many more, to get people to recognize that the price is totally paid. There is nothing you can add to it. It's done. Now are you going to accept it? Or are you going to sit there and say, No, I'm going to pay this debt. He says, Jesus was crucified before you. That's how He presented it. And so He says over here in chapter 5, you did run well. He knew that they received this and they started out in the grace of God and they were so thrilled. But then people came in and said, oh, you know, yeah, Jesus did die for your sins, but unless you keep this Old Testament law, unless you do this and this and this, then... You are separated from God and God is still angry at you and you can't go to heaven if you don't get all of these things done. And they begin people; they begin to make people go back under the law. And that's what he's referring to right here. He said, Who did um, hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that called you. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. Most of the time, or many times in Scripture, 11 is spoken of as sin. And so people nearly always take this and refer it to sin. That, man, if you sin a little bit, it's going to defile you completely. If you'll take all of this in context, he's talking about this yoke of bondage, this legalistic mindset, and he says a little bit of legalism will corrupt you. You know, there are some things that are negotiable. I had one pastor draw like a target and say, here's the bullseye. And these are the things that are non-negotiable. But then the further you get away from the core of the gospel out here, you know, whether you, uh, you know, wear your hair a certain length or whether you dress this way or that, some of those things, the further you get away, you can, you can kind of turn the other way and there's room for variance and uh, personal opinion on that. But man, there's certain things that you cannot compromise on. This is what Paul was saying, that this is something that cannot be compromised on any legalism Changes the whole thing. You can't say it's 90% God, it's 90% the grace of God, but I've also got to be holy or God won't use me. Any little bit of legalism is like leaven and it'll enter in and it'll defile your whole thing. You can't tolerate legalism. Boy, I could stop right here and preach for two or three weeks about people that are in places that are just hurting you. I've had two or three people coming to me this week and talk about, it. I'm trying, I know that I've heard what you've said, I believe it, but I'm trying. And it just is so much of a struggle, I can't seem to get there. And you know what I ask? I've asked them? I said, so where do you go to church? Do they build you up? And, and everyone hangs their head, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> Man, they preach against everything you preach. They're condemning me. And, it's no, and I said, and you're wondering why you're struggling there are many of you that are bootlegging the gospel. What I mean by that is, you go to some church and give your ties to something that isn't preaching the gospel and is causing a lot of problems, and then you come to me or other people and get our tapes and CDs and watch us, and that's where you get fed and you give your money someplace else. Enough said. In verse 10 he says, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. You know what this is talking about? People started coming in and teaching legalism and saying, unless you do this, unless you're holy, God won't bless you. God won't love you. God's not pleased with you. And he says, whoever's preaching that to you is going to bear his own judgment. You know what this means? A person who preaches that if you aren't good enough, if you don't do these things, God won't bless you, you won't get blessings, you'll get cursed, that person's going to have their own preaching come back to haunt them. And the truth is that even though somebody might do a better job and live holier than I do, they're still going to miss it. And when they miss it, all of this wrath and judgment that they've preached comes back on their own head. And I tell you, I've been around a long time. I've now been in ministry for 43 years. I've seen people come and go. James uh, Dobson over here said that only uh, 20% of ministers stay in ministry after 5 years. And out of that 20%, 80% of those are in burnout and ready to quit. If you add all of this up, that means there's around 5% of ministers that walk in the joy and in the victory that they're supposed to claim. the most, most of them get depressed and discouraged and quit along the way. And you know why? Because they're preaching condemnation and they reap what they sow. They're going to bear their own judgment when you're condemning other people and telling them and you set this standard up there and if you don't do this, God won't bless you. Well, even the minister can't measure up. There's not a single minister in here. You know, you see me at my best. You don't know me all the rest of the time. But I can guarantee you, I'm not perfect. I mess up. I go up and down in different things. And if I was preaching legalism and that God only loves you and answers your prayer when you're worthy of it, I would bear my own judgment. And I would wind up being burned out and stuff. But I'm not. I'm happy. I'm blessed because I've been preaching the grace of God. And man, it's good for me, not only for you. You can't live under that kind of legalism. And then we come to the verse that I read last night, verse 11. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense, the scandal of the cross ceased. And look at the next verse, verse 12. I would, would they were even cut off, which trouble you. You know what that word is? I, I wrote this down because I knew many of you wouldn't accept this. So I made a little note. Here's the Greek word A P O K O P T O. That's the Greek word that was used for cutoff, and it means to amputate, reflexive, reflective, by irony, to mutilate the private parts. You know what Paul's saying? Those that are preaching circumcision and the law by extension, I would to God that they were castrated. Why stop at just part way? <laughs> Amen?) I didn't write this. This is the Bible. This is just as much the Bible as John 3:16. I'm telling you what the Bible said. This is how Paul felt about it. This wouldn't go over very good in a seeker-sensitive church, amen. (laughs) But this is what Paul's saying. Man, if you're going to preach that, don't stop halfway. Just cut the whole thing off, amen. That's what he's talking about. Look over in Philippians chapter 2. Paul is saying the exact same thing over here in Philippians chapter 2. Well, let's go to chapter 3. There was a verse in chapter 2 I was going to use, but I'm not doing very well on my time, so let's just uh, go here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things unto you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is isn't safe. People are always wanting to hear something new. Man, this is, this is as simple as you can get. This is stuff that people ought to learn the first day of their salvation. This is basic Christianity and the body of Christ hadn't even got this. We're wanting to hear about the glory cloud or about the end times or about something else and we don't even know how to live today. And then he says, beware of dogs. You know, back when I was first witnessing to people, people slammed the door in my face and I just determined I was going to get my foot in the door and talk to these people. And I remember I said, God, give me something to, to do. And I went up and knocked on this door and this woman just opened it a crack, had that chain on the door. She says, what do you want? And I said, praise God, I finally found a Christian. And she looked at me and she says, what makes you think I'm a Christian? I said, you got a scripture written on your gate out here. And she undid that thing and walked out on the front porch. And she says, where do I have a scripture? And I said, right here. It says, beware of dogs. (laughs) And I was able to read the whole chapter before she recovered and shut the door in my face. (laughs) That was awesome. Anyway, that's not talking about an animal, that's, that's a whole different thing. Beware of evil workers, and it says here, beware of the concision, for we are the circumcision. You know what this is talking about? The word concision means a cutting or a mutilation, the word circumcision means to cut around. What Paul is doing, this is a slam, it's a criticism of the Jews who were trusting in their circumcision. And he says, beware of those who've just cut themselves, because we are the circumcision. All they've done is mutilate themselves. Can you imagine how offensive that was to the Jews? Hold your finger here, because I'm not through, but look in Romans chapter 2, at this verse. This will bother some of you. He says in verse 25, "...for circumcision verily profiteth if you keep the law." In other words, if you're going to live by the law, well then that's great as long as you can do all of it. But you miss in one point, you become guilty of all. James chapter 2 verse 10. "...for circumcision verily profiteth if thou keepest the law, but if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law... "...shall not his circumcision be counted for circumcision, and shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge you, who by the letter and circumcision does transgress the law. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly..." Talking about circumcision. "...whether or not you have a long nose, whether your your skin is a certain color, whether you are a descendant of Abraham..." He is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, and not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. This is not saying that the Jews still don't have promises that God made to them that are going to be fulfilled. I don't believe in, what did you call it, replacement theophora? I don't know these names, but I believe that the Jews still have a part and God has promises to them. But I tell you, God isn't any longer looking on the flesh. And let me just throw this one thing in, and I'm going to try and get beyond this. Amen. I know this is getting a little personal for some people, but this is what the Bible talks about. But you know why I believe God gave circumcision as the sign of the covenant? Because it was meant to be private. You don't walk up to a person and say, Look at my sign of the covenant. This was something between you and God. It wasn't ever meant to be bragged about. It's amazing how people made such a big deal out of something that really you shouldn't be bragging about. It's the matter of the heart. And so back in, um, where was I? Philippians chapter 3. Let me go back to where I was. It was. Get off that train of thought. He says, beware of those who just cut themselves, because we are the true Jews. We are the true circumcision, which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. This goes right along with John 4.24 that says God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. You can't worship God in the flesh. Those who are preaching your holiness and you conforming to a standard are worshiping God in your flesh, not in your spirit. True circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. And he says that we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Those who put confidence in all of the things that they do for God are legalist. And they aren't walking in the grace of God. And they aren't receiving from God. It's a stumbling block and it's a hindrance. Likewise, those that don't have confidence, it's because their focus is on the flesh. Your flesh is the only part of you that is not good. Your little spirit's perfect. You've been born again. If you were worshiping God in spirit and in truth, you would have boldness to enter right into the very throne room of God because in your spirit you have been made brand new. You're identical to Jesus. If you are feeling unworthy, if you are feeling condemned, and how could God ever move in my life, you are worshiping God in the flesh. You're basing it upon your actions instead of what Jesus did for you in your new person that you are in the spirit. Boy, those are awesome statements. And he says, after he said this about we have no confidence in the flesh, he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks that he has whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. In other words, Paul would have never spoken this way because he was worshiping God in spirit and in truth. But for those who were saying, oh yeah, you're just preaching this so that you don't have to live holy and you don't have to do anything good, Paul says, look, I've already been down that road. I've done all of these things. Matter of fact, I'm holier than any of you. I've done more than you did. Basically, what he's saying is some of you are thinking, if I could just be good enough and do all of these things, then maybe God will move in my life. He says, I've been holier than any of you and it still wasn't enough. I'm telling you, that's not the route to go. You need to change. You know, I can say this. I've lived holier than most of the people in here. And I don't say that to brag on me. I say it to show how condemned I was when I was a little kid. I was afraid to do anything. I used to have dreams. I'd smoked a cigarette and woke up in hell. But I've lived holy by man's standards. And it didn't get me a single thing from God. Some of you are trying to become holy enough and promising God and trying to do more and more and more so that God will move in your life. And I'm just telling you, it's a dead end. It's like being on a treadmill. You can put all of this effort into it and do things and you never go anywhere. You never get anywhere. Scenery's not going to change. That's what Paul is saying. He says, if other people want to brag in their flesh, I could brag. He says, uh, I have more reason to be confident. Circumcised the eighth day. So again, I refer back to the fact that Paul isn't saying that doing something is, is wrong or you shouldn't do it. It's the fact that people trusted these things to gain them access to God. It's not what you do. It's where your faith is. You can't put faith in the things that you do. So he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Which to us that doesn't mean a lot, but in that day Pharisees were super, super righteous. This said a dozen sentences at one time when he said he was a Pharisee. Not many people could lay claim to that. Man, he was claiming that he was strict. He had memorized the first five books of the Bible, could quote them verbatim. He did all of these things. He observed all of the dress codes. He did everything that there was to do. Concerning concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. He didn't say sinless. Nobody's sinless, but he was blameless. He gave it his best shot. He didn't fulfill it perfectly, but he did it as good as anybody could. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but done, that I may win Christ. Again, you know, this is a nice way of saying it, but you could substitute some other words right here. He's just talking about that this is... I don't talk that way, but you could could fill in the blank. That's how much he valued all of his degrees and the fact that he was educated under the leading religious person and he was the number one zealot in the nation. And when he walked by, people would bow down and, and show honor because he was so holy. And he says, I count all of that like dung compared to what I've received through Christ. And brothers and sisters, all of your righteousness and all of your goodness may look good compared to mine or compared to somebody else. You may be doing better than anybody else in here, but compared to Jesus and what He has to offer, all of your righteousness is like dung. It's useless. And yet, how proud we are of all of our accomplishments and we brag about it. You know, I'm always amazed. You can tell people that don't have a revelation of this. Because when people start talking about something, they immediately jump in and want to let you know what they've done. This is one reason I started my own minister's conference. Because I was sick and tired of going to minister's conferences where they sat you according to your importance. And you had to sit, you know, on the front rise, usually on the back row back there. And every time you went, it was just a downer, because you'd go up and say, Hi, I'm so-and-so, and they'd say, Hi, I've got 15 churches, I've got a church of 5,000, I've got this, here's is my monthly income. How are you? Who are you? And it was just all comparing yourself. People who brag on themselves. Can't let anybody else minister something without saying, Hey, I minister to those things, you ought to hear my teaching on that. You haven't discovered who you are in Christ, and what Jesus did for you, and you're all about promoting yourself. I tell you, when you get a revelation that you at your very best deserve to go to hell, it will change your attitude. And even though you do some good things, and even though you may be better than somebody else, you won't be bragging about it because you'll know that, man, it's by the grace of God that I've done anything. I heard a man that had a vision of going to heaven, and in this thing there was tens of thousands millions of people there They were standing before God and he saw some of the great people of history who changed the world and had great honor come and stand before God and they recounted all of their goods and all of the things that they were done. But when they were put in the balance because they didn't trust in Jesus, they were thrown into hell. And as this man was moving up in the line, he said fear began to grip him and it got worse and worse and worse. Because compared to those other people, they had done greater things, more worthy things than what he had done, and he just knew he was going to be cast into hell. And yet, when he got there, Jesus appeared and said, This one, you know, has trusted me. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And even though he wasn't as good as somebody else because his faith was in Jesus, he got in because of what Jesus had done. And he related that in his vision or dream, after that, all boasting was excluded. Nobody was feeling like, man, I made it. You weren't bragging on yourself. You were flat on your face before God saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I think that when we really see things and how it really goes, you know, the Bible says that He's going to wipe tears away from our eyes. I don't think that's because we all limp into heaven and we were just suffering so bad that we were just all crying and when we get there, He has to dry our tears. I think it's going to be when we see people who are greater and holier and better than you cast into eternal hell and you realize, whoa, man, I got no goodness. I don't have any claim to anything. And then God says, well done, good and faithful servant, because you put your faith in Jesus. Man, I think about 10 billion years won't be sufficient for me to say thank you, thank you, thank you. People are always talking about what are we going to do in heaven? Just sit on a uh, cloud and and strum a harp, man, I'm going to be flat on my face saying, thank you, Jesus, amen, and worshiping God. I don't care if I have anything else to do. That will be more than enough. Again, people who think that way, they have never understood. You know, I, I preach grace, and a lot of people criticize me and say, I'm making light of sin. I believe it's really just the opposite. I believe people that are preaching that you've got to be holy, they're making light of what Jesus did. They don't understand the price it was paid. They are emphasizing what we've got to do instead of what was done for us. And what we have to do is pales in comparison to what Jesus did for us. You know, when I had this experience with the Lord, March the 23rd, 1968, in retrospect, I am super glad for the way that God started my relationship with Him. Because I was a religious Pharisee, I got born again when I was eight, and I thought I was better than everybody else. I never smoked a cigarette. I never used a word of profanity. I was living righteous and holy, and I was proud of how holy I was and thinking God owed me something. And yet I wasn't seeing any victory. But I was still deluded that thinking that somehow or another I was just good enough that God had to move in my life. And on March the 23rd, 1968, God just pulled back a veil And I don't even know how this happened. I can't explain it to you, but I instantly saw what a religious hypocrite I was. I saw how I was trusting in myself and how I was counting all of my goodness and comparing myself to people. And God just, I mean, in a moment's time, showed me that all of my righteousness is like filthy rags. And I honestly thought God was going to kill me. I was 18 years old. I was told that God's the one that killed my dad when I was 12, that God's the one that did things. And with my theology at that time, when I saw how ungodly I was, I thought that was the first time God had seen it. And I just, I honestly expected to die that night. I was in the presence of a holy God. And it wasn't just me. There was probably 15 people in that prayer meeting. And every person was on their face before God for hours. God walked into that place. And he started showing me what a hypocrite I was, not in a rejecting type of way, but just revealing this self-righteousness to me and how it was not sufficient. And man, I spent over an hour, maybe an hour and a half or two hours turning myself inside out. And I hadn't done that many physical acts wrong, but boy, in my heart, I'd committed them all. I'd lusted, I'd lied, I'd done everything in my heart. And I started confessing in front of the leaders of the church, in front of my best friends, my hypocrisy. My logic was that I thought God was going to kill me, but right before He killed me, I was going to mention everything I could mention and get it under the blood so that I wouldn't go to hell. Maybe it'd at least take me to heaven. And I confessed everything that there was to confess. And I am now, in retrospect, I'm so glad that God did that. Because then, after I'd done all of this, and there was nothing left to say. You know, some of you have a hard time understanding this, but I have never, ever, ever, ever in the last 43 years had to dedicate myself to God or commit myself to God. I've never had to rededicate. That's what the Baptists used to call it. If I'd have had a rededicator, I'd have broken mine. I was down there every time they had an altar call. I'd go down. We had seven days' services. I'd be down there every night. And I'd rededicate myself every time. But you know what? On March the 23rd, 1968, I gave God everything I had. There wasn't a thought left. There wasn't anything left. I didn't have anything left to give. I actually looked it up in the dictionary. And you know, there is no such word as rededicate. If it was truly dedicated, it can't be undedicated. Undedicated. If you were dedicated for a little bit and then you're undedicated, you never were dedicated. If you truly commit, you're committed. And so anyway, I made this commitment to the Lord and I just turned my life over to Him and repented. I was already born again, but I I repented of my self-righteousness and committed myself. And you know when I did, instead of God killing me, I had a tangible love of God flow over me and for four and a half months, I was caught up in the presence of God. I don't know where I was. I don't know what happened. I never slept more than an hour at a time for four and a half months. I never ate a meal. I'd eat something every once in a while, but man, who could eat? I was caught up in the presence of God. And and I'm glad that it happened the way it did. Because, see, if I would have just experienced the love of God, I might have thought that it was something I did that made it happen and that God rewarded me because I was really awesome. But it was after I finally realized that I wasn't worth spitting on. I didn't deserve anything. And then when I experienced God's love, man, by contrast... Man, I appreciated the love of God. I've never gotten over it. I don't ever intend on getting over it. It's more real in my life now than it was back then. And I think that really very few people ever come to the end of themselves before they start trying to experience God. And it's good for you. It's good for you to realize that all of your righteousness is not worth anything. And it makes you throw yourself on God. It's actually a healthy thing. And there are many of you in here tonight... That I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about who you are in Christ and, and what you have in Christ. You're awesome in Christ, but you need to come to the end of yourself and get rid of your self-righteousness and your trust in yourself like Paul and say that all of these great accomplishments. Paul was probably the leading religionist of his day, and he says it's all like dung. Man, everyone of us ought to be able to say that. And yet a lot of people can't. You need to let God reveal to you how little all of your goodness is worth. Your self-goodness. See, when I talk this way, a lot of people say, well, man, that's hurting my (laughs) self-esteem. And self-esteem is nearly God. We believe that everybody has to have self-esteem. I don't believe the Bible teaches self-esteem. I believe it teaches Christ-esteem. You need to esteem who you are in Christ and what He's done in your life and the work of God in you. And you need to praise God, but see, all of the credit goes to Him. The truth is, you caused Jesus to have to die. Your sin caused God to have to send His Son. Every one of us in here is guilty of the greatest transgression that could ever happen, and that is our sin caused God Almighty to literally have to kill His Son to justify you. And that makes all of us unworthy in ourselves. And you shouldn't have great self-esteem. Amen. Many of you disagree with that. I understand that. I understand I'm not the final answer on everything. You're entitled to your opinion, but I'm not going to agree with you or we'd both be wrong. And so in verse... um, 9, he says, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. You know what your own righteousness is? It's all that self-esteem. It's all your goodness. All of your awesomeness. You are just so powerful. I meet people all of the time that it's like, man, God, just get me on the stage. Just, you give me the audience and I can handle it from here. You open up the door and God, I can take it from here. That's the very reason that God's not using you. It says over in John chapter 2 that when he was the first time he appeared in Jerusalem, it says many believed on him when they saw the miracles that he did, but Jesus wouldn't commit himself to any of them because he knew what was in man and he didn't want any man testifying of him out of their own ability. The very reason that God isn't using some of us is because we aren't trusting His grace and what He's done. We are doing it in ourselves. We're thinking, God, you are so awesome to have me on your side. No wonder you chose me. I can see the wisdom of it. Man, God, I'm awesome and, and thank you for choosing me. Now you just open up the door and I can take it from here. That's the very reason God's not using it. If you're praying and saying, oh God, use me, oh God, open up doors. The reason God isn't using you is because you aren't usable. And the thing that makes us unusable is not sin or any of these things. It's the fact that our our trust and confidence is in our flesh instead of who we are in Christ. In a way, it's a great blessing not to have any natural talents or abilities. I pity those of you who can do anything. Because it's hard for you to trust God because you can do it. Man, I was blessed in that I was never good at anything. And so, man, when I had this experience and I experienced God and found God, there was no contest. Nothing I've ever done even came close to competing in what God could do through my life. And so it was easy. It was easy for me to run up a white flag and just say, oh, man, you can have it because I didn't have much. I didn't have any trophies sitting on my shelf. I didn't have any accolades. That's the reason the Bible says God chose the weak things of the world to confound the wise and base things of this world and things that are not to bring to naught things that are so that no flesh would glory in His presence. Nobody is going to stand there and say, boy, look what I did through Jesus. It's It's not I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me that has to be the the attitude the emphasis and the problem is most of us are just too in love with ourselves. and so he says i I want to be found not having my own righteousness not self-worth but christ worth i want to value who i am in christ which is of the law that self-worth is all of the law it's all of the flesh it's all external but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by Him, by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto His death. Man, there's so many good things there. I'm trying to get down to verse 18. I've got a long ways to go. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained... Either we're already perfect, but I follow after if I may apprehend that for which I also am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. That's talking about in his flesh. In his flesh, Paul still wasn't the perfect person. You aren't ever going to be the perfect person. It's amazing how people think... That, well, I got saved and I had to come to Him just as I am, without one plea. I didn't have anything to offer Him. But now I've been a Christian for 20 years and I ought to be stronger than this. And I ought to be all of these things. Your flesh never, ever is going to get better. The victory to the Christian life isn't somehow or another getting rid of all of your weaknesses and becoming strong, the victory in the Christian life is becoming weaker and weaker, less and less dependent upon yourself, and more and more dependent upon who Christ is in you, and learning how to trust Him. Your flesh doesn't ever get any better. Did you know that your flesh is just as capable of sinning right this moment as it was before you got saved? The only victory, the only assurance that you have is if you quit trusting in yourself and instead become so completely dependent upon God. That is the only thing that gives you assurance that you're going to be able to make it and hold on and and act right. And if you are really pleased with yourself, then that hinders the process. You need to get through loving yourself and start loving God and what God has done in you. You know, I had a man one time that did some things, wound up in a psych ward, had thought of committing suicide. And I went up to visit him. He didn't want to see me. And I went in. And the reason he didn't want to see me, he says, I've been a pastor. I shouldn't have ever done these things. How dare I do this? And he just felt so ashamed. And I said, you know what? Your flesh is still the same flesh that it was before you got saved. And if you get out of the Spirit and into your flesh, you're as capable of doing anything as you ever were. I said, it's not like you've lost all of this ground that you gave. You just got out of the flesh. It's like, I mean, out of the Spirit, into the flesh. It's like flying in an airplane. You get to thinking, look what I'm doing. You aren't doing that. That airplane's the thing that's flying, and it's your position inside of that airplane that allows you to go up two miles high and 600 miles an hour It's not you doing that. And if you don't believe it, just step out of the airplane and see what happens. It's not you that's become strong. It's Christ that's strong in you. And you have quit trusting in yourself. And you've got to where you operate in faith and respond to Him. That's what gives you strength. And the moment you step out of Christ, you're going to crash and burn just the same as you would have before you got born again. Your flesh isn't any better than it was before. Flesh is flesh. It doesn't matter if it's second class or third class or USDA choice flesh. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. So what verse was that? Anyway, let's go to verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind this doesn't mean that you forget your victories. We're commanded to remember and stir ourselves up. This is talking about forgetting all of his past accomplishments and all of the things that he took pride in and thinking about how awesome he was. He just he got over himself. We ought to all get over ourselves. And we've ought to forget all of those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect. He's just talked about that, you know, he's nothing, and all of his great accomplishments are like dung. And he says, let as many of us as are as perfect think this way. How do you reconcile this? See, people have struggled with this because some people are only one-dimensional. They only think in the flesh, in the natural, and they don't understand that we're a spirit being. In the flesh, we are nothing. In the flesh, all of us have failed. The arm of flesh is never going to grant you victory. But that's not all that there is to you. There's a spiritual you. And in the Spirit, you are perfect. I mean, perfect. That word literally means complete or mature. You are full grown in the Spirit. You have the same power and faith that Jesus has. You're perfect in the Spirit. So this isn't a contradiction. Some people think, well, which is it, Paul? Man, are you nothing over here? All of your stuff is like dung, or are you perfect? Which is it? Both. In myself, I'm nothing. But in Christ, I'm a force to be reckoned with. I'm a brand new person, and the key is me staying in Christ and keeping my focus on what He did instead of getting my eyes upon myself and my own goodness and my own righteousness. And so he says in verse... um, What is that? Verse... Fourteen, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Boy, that's a great promise. Nevertheless, whereunto ye have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same things. Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walks so as ye have us for an example. Boy, what a bold statement that is. Not many people would say, you just watch the way I walk and you do what I do, and if you'll do what I do, you're okay. Most people wouldn't ever say that, and yet the Bible says that if, you, if you speak, you're supposed to speak as the oracles of God. Every minister ought to be able to say, you know what, walk the way that I do. Man, that would eliminate a lot of ministers right there. And then he says in verse 18, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping. In other words, Paul didn't take any joy in this. He didn't get satisfaction out of it. Paul wasn't a mean person. He was wanting to see people's lives changed. But nonetheless, he told the truth. And he says, There are many of whom I even tell you now weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. And you know who these were? Religious people. They weren't God-haters. Many people think the enemies of the cross of Christ, the enemies of what Jesus have done, are people that are out here, homosexuals, liars, thieves, people who are saying that they're atheists and stuff like that. Paul is talking about people who point to what you must do and try and get you to serve God and make yourself acceptable in your flesh, in your natural self, with your actions, instead of putting faith in what Jesus did. They are the enemies of the cross. They are the enemies of what Jesus did. They are preaching that Jesus didn't pay it all, that you've got to add to it, that you've got to supplement Jesus is just an addition, an add-on, but He is not the focal point. Paul said they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. And he goes on to say that their end is destruction, whose God is their belly. People who are always preaching what you must do, it's all, they, it's all for themselves. They are living to satisfy themselves and to satisfy their lust. They're physical oriented instead of spiritual oriented whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. You know what that's talking about? They're glorying in their flesh. This goes back to the very first Scripture that I used. And I'll end with this in Galatians chapter 6, the first Scripture we used on Monday night in verse 14. Let me go back and read the two previous verses. As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. So that they don't have to stand and defend the goodness and the grace of God. They just say, well, you've got to do all of these things. And the carnal person accepts that. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. Legalists, people who preach holiness, are always in the flesh and always focused on the flesh. And they're preaching this so that they can take pride in how you dress and how many times you come to church, and how much you give. Instead of looking at matters of the heart, they're always wanting to find something in the physical because their man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Carnal people are always focused on what you're doing outwardly, and they don't care what you're like on the inside. But in verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Over there in Philippians 3, it says they glory in their shame. They are glorying in their accomplishments. They are glorying in their goodness and all of their achievements instead of like Paul saying, I don't glory in anything except what Jesus did for me. Man, this is a great way to live. Because see, when everything is on Jesus, Satan can't condemn you. As long as I think I'm somebody special and I'm saying, Oh God, I'm better than I've been. Thank you that I am now a mature Christian and I'm awesome. God, you've really done a great thing in me and I am proud of it. The moment you do that, a haughty spirit goes before destruction. Or I misquoted that. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. what does it say? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The moment you get to swelled up with pride and thinking about you, you have just stepped out of the airplane. You are cr- you're going to crash and burn. You are no longer in the Spirit. Satan is going to eat your lunch and pop the bag. Man, the devil loves it when you get in the flesh, because now he can... And I can promise you, it doesn't matter how good you live, there will be something always that he can accuse you over. You're never going to be perfect until you get a glorified body. But when you stay in the Spirit and base everything on what Jesus did, you're just like Teflon. Nothing sticks. He can throw any accusation at you. And you know, the Bible says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. And he can say, you aren't worthy. And you just say, you know what? You're right. I'm not worthy. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God that I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus and get it through who He is. And you can go through the day rejoicing instead of feeling condemned and guilt-ridden because it doesn't matter. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. He paid it for you. And God loves you because you love Jesus. And if you've accepted Jesus, that's good enough for God. He accepts you. You are accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1.6 Isn't that awesome? Man, I tell you, this is powerful, powerful stuff. And all of this is what it means when He says, I'm glorying in the cross. That there's an offense of the cross. This is offensive to the person who is super proud and pleased with how awesome they are. They do not like this message. Because it takes their pride away, their arrogance away, and it makes them dependent upon somebody beside themselves. And that's tough on human nature. But I tell you, it's a way to go. It's a blessing. I would highly recommend it. Amen? Father, thank You for these truths. Thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You, Father, that we were destitute. We could have never paid for all of our errors. And so you sent a Savior who did it all for us. And Father, I pray through these scriptures and things we've talked about tonight that you would help people to get out of themselves and out of trusting in themselves. And that we would step over into the Spirit and just dwell in who we are in Christ and what you've provided for us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that there's a a lifting of guilt and condemnation as we focus our attention on You. Father, I pray that people would experience the joy and the peace of knowing what it's like to be one with You and in the Spirit and feeling no guilt and condemnation. And I pray that people would enjoy it so much that they would just stay there and never go back to the flesh and never go back to trusting in themselves. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to do these things in our hearts and in our lives tonight, and we thank you for it. Praise the Lord. You know, there's a lot of things I believe that God's doing here tonight, but I believe that as I was speaking, there are some of you that haven't come to the end of yourself and you know it's not always easy to do this may be the only message some of you have ever heard about self-esteem not being the goal of every person and that you aren't supposed to just esteem yourself you're supposed to esteem what God has done and who God has made you in the spirit and not in your flesh there's some of you that this is the first time you've ever heard any human being ever talk like this And you can't do something that you've never heard. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. I believe that there's people here tonight that just need to run up a white flag and surrender and say, God, forgive me for my self-righteousness. And I want to be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness that is in my born-again spirit through faith. I want to be in Christ. If somebody, if this is a revelation and you realize you've never done that tonight, you know, I'd just like to give this invitation that you just stand right where you are and we're going to make a commitment and say, God, I'm turning from my self-righteousness and I want to be found only in you. I'm repenting of my self-righteousness and I want to be found only in your righteousness. If that's you, I want you to just be bold enough to stand right where you are and we're going to lead you in a prayer. Of repentance, And if this does half as much for you as it's done for me, this is going to revolutionize your life. I believe that. There may be somebody saying, well, man, I probably need this, but I don't want to stand. What's everybody going to think about me? You know what that is? Self-righteousness. Some of you are thinking, I think I'll just sit down and pray this prayer. I'm going to pray this won't work if you're seated. If you're going to receive this, you've got to humble yourself and stand. A lot of people stood. See, there were some of you going to bootleg this prayer. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just thank you and I pray that right now we've humbled ourselves. You said if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that you will lift us up. Father, we just humble ourselves and we say forgive us for our self-righteousness. Forgive us, Father, for being so focused on ourself and not focused on You. Forgive us for trying to find a righteousness that is of our own instead of that which was a gift from You. Father, thank You for the revelation of this tonight. And we believe that You're going to just keep this strong in our life and that we will turn from self-righteousness and we will commit ourselves to the righteousness which is of God by faith. So, Holy Spirit, we thank you for this revelation. We believe that you're going to bring this back to our remembrance, whatsoever you've spoken unto us, and that this is going to become real and that you're going to help us to get out of the flesh and into who we are in Christ. We make that commitment and believe that you are faithful and just to keep that which we commit. We make the commitment. Now, Father, we thank you that you're going to keep it and hold us to it. Thank you for your guidance, and we agree and receive it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. Did you all mean that? Amen. Praise the Lord. Again, I'd like to ask if there's anybody here who needs salvation. You know, again, there are many people that think they're saved because they go to church and they're a relatively good person. But if you heard my message tonight... All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Nobody's flesh, I don't care how good you are, is worthy of relationship with God. So if if you've never made that commitment, regardless of whether you're one of the pillars of the church, you ought to come forward and confess Jesus as your personal Lord. And if you've already been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You can't understand the things I've talked about tonight in your carnal mind. You have to get this by revelation. It just doesn't come any other way. If you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to give you an opportunity to come forward and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues. If that's you, if you need to be born again, make a profession of your faith in Jesus and not in yourself or if you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues I'd like to ask you to get up out of your seat right now and just come forward and we're going to pray for you and help you to receive anybody anybody in here like that if that's you wave at me amen have we gotten everybody in here saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost if you're saved and baptized in the Holy Ghost and speaking in tongues raise your hand keep them up i'm looking greg moore right down here doesn't he oh there he is well it looks to me like everybody's already saved and baptizing the holy ghost what a deal amen Then you got all of the goods, praise God. All you need to do is renew your mind and start receiving what is already yours. I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come up here. And again, if there's anybody that needs prayer, you know, you may not be limited to a physical thing that you need. It could be just that you need... A supernatural revelation of these things and you want somebody to pray there's a scripture in Luke 24:45 that says then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures we can pray for you that God will give you a revelation there could be all kinds of things maybe you've prayed for healing before but you've never understood some of the things that we've talked about now you're ready to stand on what God has done for you and receive it as a gift If you need prayer for anything, that's what all of our prayer ministers are here for, and that's to pray with you. So if you need prayer, just come forward right now. The rest of you, remember that we have books, CDs, all of these things. We have the services. All of the services up to this point are already recorded on CDs and on DVDs. You can get those out there. Remember that we'll be back tomorrow. I tell you, this morning was powerful. If you weren't here this morning, you missed a blessing. So if you can, come back in the morning. We're going to have a special time. We're going to have some of our directors give you some of the testimonies about emptying entire hospitals and seeing awesome things happen. It'll be a blessing to you. So we'll be back at 9 in the morning. We have our healing school tomorrow afternoon at 1 o'clock. And I'd encourage you to come to that. And then we'll... Have our services tomorrow night. So God bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for coming.